Let's read before we pray. Let me read a couple of verses to you from Psalm 9, reading at verse 7. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord will also be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. O Lord, we are so blessed by that truth. We're so thankful that we know the God who has created us and has called us into his kingdom. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, created us first of all in the flesh and now you have recreated us in the Spirit through the power of your Holy Spirit as we have placed faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And Lord, we, we live in a world that is tumultuous. We live in a world where we believe more and more. We're seeing the signs of the end times. And Father, I pray that we will remain faithful. We know that in the last generation, things will be like they were in the days of Noah when so few believed. Lord, keep us faithful to you. Keep our loved ones faithful to you. Do a mighty work, Father. We need a great revival in this land. So many things are, are moving into unthinkable realms, O Lord. It's only you that can rescue us. We ask, Lord, that you will be our teacher now this morning, that as we look at these events and the persons and truths that come from this period of time, that you will instruct us by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Early in the second century before Christ, the Promised Land came under the rule of the Seleucid Empire. Just a little reminder that what you see up here is the result of the activities of Alexander the Great when he conquered the Persian Empire and his sudden death caused his empire to fragment. And the two pieces that we've been concerned about, what goes on over here was, is of little importance to us here. But what is of importance to us is the creation of this large empire here, which is called the Seleucid Empire, after the very first ruler, whose name was Seleucus, and the Ptolemaic Empire, which is the pink down here, named after the very first ruler, whose name was Ptolemy. Seleucus and Ptolemy were both generals who had served under Alexander the Great. So after the chaos which followed upon the death of Alexander the Great, there was no successor to him. His, he had a half-brother, but his half-brother was uh, mentally deficient. He had a son, but his son was posthumous and obviously in no condition to rule. And as a result, after a period of chaos, this is how it all fell out. The Holy Land was at first uh, ruled by the Ptolemies, and I emphasized to you last time that during the time of the Ptolemies, the Jews were able to continue on their worship and their lifestyle pretty much unhindered. But with the defeat of the Ptolemies by the Seleucids in a great battle in right around the beginning of the uh, second century before Christ, the Seleucids came to control this particular area. And the individual I mentioned, two individuals I mentioned last time were emperors. One was Antiochus III. Once he had defeated Egypt, he decided to march out over this way and expand his power to the west, and that's when he ran into the eastward moving armies of Rome. And he was defeated. And so his successor, not his immediate successor, but a couple of uh, emperors later, this is where we are today in our study, Antiochus IV. 
Antiochus IV was the emperor who ruled this empire in the, um, at the end of the first quarter of the second millennium BC. You have a growing threat from Rome. Now, I don't really have time, and this is probably not the place to go into the whole history of the development of Rome, but uh, Rome at this time was a republic, which meant that she had elected leadership. She was ruled largely by the Senate through what are known as councils. And during this period of time, Rome was, was very aggressive. She would be considered malignant <laughs> in terms of expansion. And that's going to directly impact the Holy Land. In fact, the condition of Israel at the time of Jesus was directly the result of that Roman malignancy. Antiochus IV wanted to strengthen his rule against the encroachment of Rome, and so he began the process of actively Hellenizing, which means to convert the people into Greek language, culture, dress, thought, religion, all of those things. To Hellenize is to make Greek. comes from the ancient name of the Greeks. Who, they were called Hellenes. In fact, I think today some of you may be stamp collectors. I know stamps used to have, from Greece, used to have the word Hellas on them. Anyway, to Hellenize, uh, to make Greek. And he wanted them, as part of that expression, to worship Zeus, who was the head of the great pantheon of gods. And to facilitate this, I mentioned to you, this to you at the very end, near the end last time, that he decided to declaim that he himself was Zeus incarnate. Therefore, he took the title Theos Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of God, and by God he meant Zeus. On his return from conquering Egypt, he looted the temple in Jerusalem. And I read the passage, or I, I read a piece of the passage from uh, chapter of 1 Maccabees, which describes that looting and how he stripped all the gold and took all the uh, furniture off the uh, temple and carried off back to Antioch. His capital was, doesn't show up here, but his capital is right up in this corner of the Mediterranean up here at Antioch. And he carried everything off there. Two years later, Egypt revolted against his rule. He had conquered Egypt, now they're revolting against him, and so he launches an attack against Egypt again. However, at that time, he discovers that there's a force from Rome there. The Romans have moved into Egypt, and basically there was a line literally drawn in the sand, and he was told, hey, you know, you either leave Egypt or you face Rome. And being wiser than we might think, uh, he decided to leave Egypt and not to face Rome at that time. But he decides that this territory down here, which he has conquered, so if you can extend in your mind the yellow all the way down to here, all this now is yellow. It's part of the Seleucid Empire. Uh, he decides to make that the fortified frontier of his empire because he was fearing a, an Egyptian-Roman alliance. Well, to do this, he needed to Hellenize the people of Israel completely and totally. And so he really pulled out all the stops to make the Jews Greeks. And in an effort to do this, the effort that he put out to do this is apparently described for us in the book of Daniel. Let me read to you a brief passage from the 11th chapter of the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel 11, verse 29. This, of course, is Daniel prophesying these events several hundred years ahead of time. And so he doesn't exactly name these people. You know, doesn't call him Antiochus IV. But 
this appears to be to whom he is alluding here. At the appointed time he will return and come into the south. That's Antiochus IV. But this time it will not turn out the way it did before, two years before when he had conquered Egypt. For the ships of Katim will come up against him. And, and most believe probably that Katim here means Rome. Katim is literally Cyprus, but probably is alluding to Rome here. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. He will come back and show, and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. A statue of Zeus was set up on the temple grounds called Baal Shamayim, Lord of Heaven. And the Jews will be forced, at least those who are willing to be forced, to make sacrifices to this pagan deity right on the temple grounds, profaning the temple, as Daniel says here. Profaning the temple. He will become known as the abomination that makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation, which makes him a precursor in many ways of Antichrist. Many people who read Daniel read into the future here and, and see this as both an immediate fulfillment and a distant fulfillment, that one day in the future there will be another desecration of the end times temple by the Antichrist, of whom Antiochus was a foreshadowing. Any Jews who had any thoughts of resisting faced possible death. And if you read in 1 Maccabees, you will discover that many Jews did resist because they would rather die than profane the Holy Covenant. So if, you, if we ever come to the place of thinking that in the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, that all of the Jews were, you know, reprobate, that's not true. There were thousands, there were large groups of them who were still faithful to, to God and to the worship of God at the temple, and they were willing to die for their faith. At that point, an old priest by the name of Mattathias Hasmonean. Now, if you have that handout, which I gave to you this morning, you can look at this and you can check out these people and these, these names and dates and so forth as we go along so that if, you, if the name just, duh, I've never heard of that before, uh, it's on here. If you come down three to where it says Hasmonean dynasty, well, go up above that, the Maccabean revolt, Mattathias Hasmonean. He was a priest who said he was not going to bow to Antiochus's abomination here. Instead, he led a revolt, and he and his five sons went out in the wilderness, raised a standard, and said, all those who, who are opposed to what this man is doing, come and join me. And hundreds and ultimately thousands of rebels, guerrillas in effect, would go to join his standard in the wilderness. This begins the famous Maccabean Revolt. It's called the Maccabean Revolt because Mattathias Hasmonean, if you look directly under him, you see Judas Hasmonean Maccabeus. This was his son, one of his five sons. Judas Maccabeus was the most brilliant military leader of the whole family, and he frequently defeated the Seleucids in battle, and he was such an effective uh, leader that he was given the title Maccabeus, which is thought to translate the hammerer, the one who hammers, Maccabeus. 
And so that's why it's called the Maccabean Revolt. They functioned as guerrillas at first, but eventually were actually able to defeat Seleucid armies. The key or the important event here is that in the year 164, three years after the revolt began, Judas Maccabeus recaptured Jerusalem from the Seleucid power and he set about cleansing the temple in December of that year, which was exactly three years after it had been profaned by Antiochus IV Epiphanes, as we noted there in Daniel. That cleansing has ever since been celebrated as the Festival of Consecration, Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. Now, you can read about that and the founding of it, if you wish, in 1 Maccabees. Let me read to you from the fourth chapter of 1 Maccabees. So if you'll turn there. Yes. <laughs> if you happen to have an Orthodox or a Catholic Bible, you could do that. But being probably have Protestant Bibles, or if you had a Jewish Bible, you couldn't do that. This is speaking about, well, let me, let me back up from the passage I was going to read. Uh, then, then said Judas and his brothers, Behold, our enemies are crushed. This is Judas, Hasmonean, Maccabeus. Let us go up and cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and they went up to Mount Zion. By the way, in case you're wondering, even though 1 Maccabees is not considered by the Jews or the Protestants to be canonical scripture, it is believed to be accurate history. So all the army assembled and they went up to Mount Zion. And they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. In the courts they saw bushes sprung up as, as in a thicket or as one of the mountains. So, you know, here's the, the temple grounds and bushes are coming up through the cracks and the stones. And, and they rent their clothes and mourned with great lamentation and sprinkled themselves with ashes. And they fell down on the ground and sounded the signal on the trumpets and cried out to heaven. Then Judas detailed men to fight against those in a citadel until he had cleansed the sanctuary. He chose blameless priests devoted to the law and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. They deliberated what to do about the altar of burnt offering which had been profaned. Sacrifices to the pagan god had been made on it. And they thought it best to tear it down lest it bring reproach upon them for the Gentiles had defiled it. So they tore down the altar and they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do with them. Then they took unhewn stones as the law directs and built a new altar like the former one. They also rebuilt the sanctuary and the interior of the temple and consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. And they burned incense on the altar and lighted the lamps on the lampstand. And these gave light in the temple. And they placed the bread on the table and hung up the curtains. Thus they had finished all the work they had undertaken. Early in the morning, on the 25th day of the ninth month, which is the month Kislev, in the 148th year, they rose and offered sacrifice as law directs on the new altar of burnt offerings which they had built. At the very season in which, and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it, it was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. All the people fell on their faces and worshipped and blessed heaven who had prospered them. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days and offered burnt offerings with gladness, and they offered a sacrifice of deliverance and praise. And they decorated the front of the temple with golden crowns and small shields, and they restored the gates and the chambers for the priests and furnished them with doors. 
there was very great gladness among the people, and the reproach of the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year at the season the days of the dedication of the altar should be observed with gladness and joy for eight days, beginning with the 25th day of the month of Kislev. That's the origin of Hanukkah. Right around our Christmas time. Right around our Christmas time, yeah. That's why sometimes we get a Happy Hanukkah card <laughs> at that particular time. So it isn't in the Bible, but it is true history of the Jews. It's impacted them. There is nothing wrong with Hanukkah except where Hanukkah replaces the first advent of Jesus Christ in, in the thinking of, in some people's thinking. Antiochus IV died in 163 BC and the empire was racked by civil war over the throne and it so weakened the Seleucids that the Maccabean brothers were able to rise up with greater power and Simon the last of the Maccabean brothers, was able to become both governor and high priest in 142 B.C. And so if you look at your sheet here and you look where it says Hasmonean dynasty, Simon Hasmonean, 142 to 135, he was the ruler, in effect, of Judah. Now we have to understand that during part of this time, which is called the Hasmonean dynasty, the Syrians, as they become known now, the Seleucids, are known as the Syrians, still have hegemony over the area and are still a threat. And sometimes the, the Hasmonean leader has to at least pay lip service to Antioch. But nevertheless, you have pretty much a home rule going on here in Palestine at this time. So from 142 to the year 63, Judah was under Hasmonean rule. When Simon died, you'll notice on the list there that a man comes to the leadership called John Hyrcanus. He was the son of Simon. And under him, they become sufficiently freed of Seleucid or Syrian rule so that he could begin to expand the territory of Judah. John Hyrcanus is noted for having struck in different directions out from Jerusalem to add territory to the land that, that he would rule particularly when he strike to the south, clear to the border of Egypt, and add this area here, Idumea. Now, Idumea didn't used to be here, because Idumea is Greek for Edom. And this is Edom over here. But the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, were run out of their land by the Nabataean Arabs. And they came over here and they dwelt in the area south of Hebron. So they, they dwelt in the southern part of Judah, what had been the territory of Judah. They lived there. But, but the Idumeans were not Jews. They were the descendants of Esau. So what he did was conquer them and then force them to convert, to be circumcised and to profess Judaism. Now, a lot of people back in the homeland didn't think this was a good idea because even if you circumcise them and uh, they're still the descendants of Esau and we hate them, you know, kind of idea. How dare you bring the enemy into our midst? <laughs> even if they become, quote, Jews, they're not trustworthy Jews. And he also struck north and conquered Samaria up here and, and uh, destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim that the uh, Samaritans had built to worship God. And, 
the Samaritans, of course, were, were considered almost as bad as the Idumeans, half-breeds, because of the mixing through the centuries after the Assyrian invasion of that territory had brought pagans, or Gentiles, I should say, into the land, and there had been some mixing there. And that's why in Jesus' day, Jews who went from Judea to Galilee, Judea and Galilee, Galilee were the true blue areas. Galilee was truly Jewish and uh, correct, correctly Jewish, and so was Judea, but Samaria was this. So they would go clear out of their way to, to go around Samaria. That's what made Jesus so amazing. You know, he'd walk right through Samaria. How, what kind of a man is this? Well, he also, of course, ate meals with prostitutes and tax collectors, and, and of course, he really answered their charge. And then, you know, if, if you're not sick, you don't need the doctor. It's the sick who need the doctor, you know, kind of idea. And so... John Hyrcanus was responsible for uh, incorporating these territories under his control. Also, during his time, the Pharisee and Sadducee sects seemed to have coalesced and begun, begun to uh, show up as significant uh, during the time of the reign of John Hyrcanus. Son of John Hyrcanus, Alexander Janius, you can forget Aristobulus, he was only in there for a very short period of time, as you see there, just a year maybe. Alexander Janius, who was a son of John Hyrcanus, as was Aristobulus, he continued the process of expansion, and he reestablished Dan to Beersheba, you know, that traditional land of Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, to traditional land. That was all now under the rule of the leader, and he becomes known as the king of the Jews, or king of, Jeru of, of Judah. And, and not only that, he incorporates Transjordan as well, this territory here. So that much of the territory that David had ruled before he expanded clear to the Euphrates was now again under Jewish rule during the time of Alexander Janius. When Alexander... Janius died, his wife, widow, took over for seven years. She had actually been the wife of Aristobulus, John's older brother. But when Aristobulus died, she married Alexander Janius and basically raised him to power. And then when he died, she was still around. She was in her 70s, but she was still around and uh, for seven years, there was relatively peaceful rule, but when she died, the son, their sons quarreled and squabbled and uh, created a, a situation that opened wide the door to Rome. A man by the name of Pompey, who was a military commander from Rome. You might wonder what all this has to do with the Bible. Well, you can't really understand the New Testament if you don't have some of this background. I mean, yeah, you can understand passages and spiritualize them, but you don't know the historical context and the cultural context unless you can, can get these things uh, in your mind as well. Uh, Pompey had come over here and conquered Asia Minor and actually had given the coup de grace to the Seleucid Empire. He had ended, terminated the existence of the Seleucid Empire here. And so he ends up in Jerusalem to, quote, settle the civil war or the quarreling that was going on between Alexander Janius's successors. Well, one of the things you discover if you ever study the history of Rome is you don't want Rome to show up to help you. Because if Rome shows up to help you, Rome stays. 
they help you all right. They help you right out of power. <laughs> and they take over on their own. Anyway, Pompey took over, and it, it is said that he actually went into the temple and into the Holy of Holies of the temple, which all, most of the, the loyal Jews thought the guy had to die in there. But you see, the Ark of the Covenant was not there. The Ark of the Covenant was long gone. It had never been, probably, ever in the temple from the time it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel to the time it was destroyed in the year A.D. 70. So the Holy of Holies was, for all practical purposes, empty. And so he went in, looked around, and, you know, what's this, you know? And they were pretty sure he'd, he'd die a terrible death, which he would eventually do. He would be murdered. That's pretty terrible. But not right away. I mean, it would be 20 years later. God's justice is inevitable, but it may not be tomorrow. It, he does his things in his time. So... What do you know? Who was the ruler of Judah when Jesus was born? Herod. Herod. Okay. How does Herod show up on this scene in all of this? You know, how, how do we get to Herod after all this? Well, the picture is a little complex from the time Pompey shows up on the scene and the Herodian dynasty is established. And we don't have time to go into the ins and outs of that because a lot of things were going on inside of Rome that played a direct role in all of this. Let me just point out one of them. If you go to the very last item on your sheet here where it says the late Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire, you see the term the first triumvirate. That's the rule of three. And one of those individuals was a man by the name of Julius Caesar. The other was Pompey and another was a rich man by the, by the name of Crassus. And we could forget him. Uh, it's Pompey and Caesar that are important here. Pompey, after having done what he did, felt that he deserved power back in Rome. And since he was not of the senatorial class, a lot of people in the senatorial class didn't want this guy ruling. He was of the next level down. You know, the ancient Rome was very class conscious. And, and so he didn't get along too well with the Senate. So he basically took power by force. But he brought... Julius Caesar in, who was a young, handsome man from the senatorial class, to be a partner. And so we don't have time to go into all what Julius Caesar did, which was to conquer France and a few other things along the way. But anyway, in the year 49, Julius Caesar conquered Italy and you know, became the first, you could call him emperor of Rome, Julius Caesar, for five years until he was murdered. In the initial years of, of that, he was helped by a man by the name of Antipater. And you see this right here under early Herodian dynasty. Antipater II of Idumea, Caesar made him procurator of Judah. Julius Caesar made an Idumean, from here, governor of the land. Now for the Jews who'd had a true blue Jew rulers, in, in the Hasmoneans, who were bigger than life in the eyes of many Jews, to have this guy, an Edomian, even if he was circumcised and professed faith in the living God through the ways of, Judean, of, of, of Judah, he still was a half-breed at best. I mean, totally not even a half-breed. So Julius Caesar put him in power. And the reason Caesar did that was that Antipater had helped, helped Caesar when he was over in Egypt trying to uh, defeat, or chase down Pompey. 
And so this is how it happens. Antipater is made governor by Julius Caesar. Antipater makes his son Herod governor of Galilee. And then when Antipater dies, Herod inherits the governorship of Judah. So Herod gets it by inheritance from his father, who was given it by Julius Caesar. So it's Rome's doing that brings this hated Idumean family to power in Judah. Herod was confirmed in his position by Mark Anthony. Some of you have heard of Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony was one of Julius Caesar's closest friends and, and governor. And after Julius Caesar was murdered, uh, he and a couple of other guys formed the second triumvirate, which you see down here, 44 to 31. The second triumvirate which is made up of three individuals again, one of whom you can totally forget, a, a, a Roman general by the name of Licinius. I'm trying to remember now, that doesn't sound right all of a sudden. But anyway, we, we don't need to worry about him. <laughs> Octavian, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar and his adopted son, and Mark Anthony became the two key persons here in this. The break between Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar came, uh, and, uh, and Octavian came when it looked like Mark Anthony, after he had married Cleopatra, was going to try to create their own empire in Egypt and the Eastern Mediterranean. In other words, take this whole part of what was now Rome, all Roman territory, take it all and make it a separate kingdom under Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Anthony and Cleopatra. Yes, they, are, they were real people. And so Herod was confirmed in his position by Mark Anthony, but that whole thing ended in a big battle that was fought right up here in the Gulf of Corinth called the Battle of Actium. We've seen the site over there uh, in the Gulf where this, this battle was fought between Mark Anthony and uh, Octavian in which Mark Anthony was defeated in 31 BC. And that marks the end of the triumvirate and the beginning of the rule of Octavian. Octavian Caesar, nephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, is given the title by the Roman Senate Augustus which means the revered. And that's why we know him as Caesar Augustus. And he is called that in the New Testament, Caesar Augustus. Caesar the revered. Caesar was a family name. It will become a title, as you know. And that title will be carried on in history, clear into the 20th century, in Tsar of Russia and Kaiser of Germany. The greatest of all the Roman emperors, the greatest, was Caesar Augustus. And how many times is he mentioned in the scripture? Uno. That's how much God thought of him. Luke 2.1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And how many times is this man commemorated? Every Christmas. He's in the Christmas story because this passage is always read. He has an eternality of his own. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's not where we would like to be right now. The stage was set, therefore, for the most important event in human history. The pivotal event of all time, the birth of the Messiah. Unbeknownst to the Jews, the moment had arrived that had been ordained long before the world was ever created. Thinking about that for a minute. That God didn't say, oh no, look what Adam and Eve have done. Now I've got to think of some way 
<laughs> it says very clearly from page 1 to page 2063 or whatever it is that God knows the past from the future, the present from you know, all time and before time was ever made. Let me read to you a very, very important passage from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. That's a rule. Galatians 4.4. 4. The Galatians 4.4 4 rule. Verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. In the fullness of time, God didn't just put the timeline up there and blindfold Himself and throw a dart and say, that's where Jesus is going to go into the world. It was all part of the plan. And He moved history towards that great moment. And he, gave, he put Christ into the world. He, he sent the Messiah into the world. Not when everything was, was kind of down the tubes and it would be easy for him to be there because there wouldn't be any political power. He put him into the world during the reign of the greatest of all the Caesars. The most powerful of all the Caesars. Caesar Augustus. The revered. Princeps. Imperator. Emperor. God sent His Son at that very moment of time. And he, of course, as, as you often have heard, He wasn't born into the royal palace. He was born into the back corner of a third-rate province of the empire to an uh, unwed peasant woman, or one who she became pregnant when she was unwed, at least. Many Jews... We're hoping for Messiah, and they still are hoping for Messiah to come as a conquering king. They want Messiah if they believe at all. Most Jews over in Israel today are, at, at very best, agnostic. But, but those who do believe, they want him to come now and kick Arafat, you know, from here to there, and take over and establish, you know, Israel as the great kingdom of the world. At this time, they wanted him to come and vanquish the Romans. It was impossible for them to understand the imponderable suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. How does this fit their vision of who Messiah was to be? Jesus didn't come accidentally or at some haphazard moment in time. He came at the time that was appointed as Joshua, Savior, as Hamashiach, Messiah. And the whole New Testament, the, the Gospels at least, tell us that story in, in such a beautiful, powerful way. Anybody who sits down and reads the Gospels, the four Gospels, with an open mind and a heart wanting to know the truth will be hit with the truth powerfully. Because Jesus is everything that we claim him to be, he claims, even though there are those who will say that, oh, he never said he was the Messiah, he never said he was the Son of God, he never, you know, or that he was divine. And yet it's very clear there. You have to be blind to not see it. 
And yet when he came, there were a bunch of blind people in the very land to which he came. And I want to talk about six important Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S, that developed during the intertestamental period that were very, very significant during the time that Jesus was on the earth, that were important when Jesus was on the earth. We won't have time to go through with them all, but let me just introduce the first one because it becomes root to a couple of the others. This is a, a group known as the Hasidim. The Hasidim. They, this group came into existence somewhere around 300 BC. Nobody knows exactly when. And they were interested in religious reform. Religious reform. We got to get back to the way it was of the fathers. Just like some people today say, oh, we've got to get back to New Testament Christianity. We've gotten too far away. There's, there's this idea of going back to the original is very common. It even happens in pagan religions. I mean, that's what the fundamentalist Islamic people are all about. You know, let's get back to the way it was under Muhammad or his immediate followers. The name Hasidim means the pious ones. And they were major supporters of the Maccabeans. And they vigorously opposed Hellenization. Oh, anything Greek was verboten. And they strictly observed both the written and the oral laws. The mainstream of the Hasidim would eventually evolve into the Pharisee sect. But other more radical ones would form other groups. But the mainstream of the Hasidim would become the Pharisees. Now we think very poorly often of the Pharisees, but the Pharisees thought themselves to be the keepers of the true faith. They really thought that of themselves. They were the keepers of the true faith. The problem was, as we'll see, we'll talk about the Pharisees first, first off uh, next week. Well, the problem with the Pharisees was what they defined as the true faith was a bit watered down from what the faith as originally delivered had been. So next week, uh, if you look at your sheet here, you see these six sects. The Pharisees, Sadducees, the Zealots, Herodians, and the Essenes. And so... I'm not going to be giving you any big, long treatises on any of them. We'll just introduce them. We'll let Dr. Walmart give you all the details. You might want to know if you're particularly fascinated with one of them, but we'll just talk about them briefly next week.